Welcome to Three Right Turns, the podcast that gives its hosts and probably some of its listeners ulcers. And usually I say we have a great topic, but I'm going to be honest. Today's main topic's pretty scary, but I promise as a reward, if you make it all the way through the scary stuff, you're going to get a treat. The treat is an interview with Nova Reed, writer, activist, anti-racism, educator, TED talker, a very nice lady with one of those pleasant English accents that make you just want to settle into a cup of tea and just listen. And it's going to be a nice contrast to my Midwestern braying noises that I, that I make with my mouth. So she'll be coming on to discuss her experiences with racism in the United Kingdom uh, to give us a little change of pace from the, our discussions about racism in the United States, as well as give us all ideas on how we can help combat racism locally and globally. But first, we got to talk about some scary stuff because today's topic is about a threat to the foundation of our great republic, free and fair elections. By the way, before we begin, are you registered to vote? Vote411.org can let you know right now if you're registered in your current state. And if you're not, it will provide the materials to do so. In many cases, you can register online in just minutes. It'll also provide the relevant voter ID laws you'll need to know so you can successfully vote without challenge. And you need to do this now. Because many states have just absurd pre-registration cutoffs, in some cases, many weeks before the election occurs. And you won't want to wait, especially if any part of this process will involve the U.S. Postal Service, which it probably will. And we're going to talk about that. Today, like I said, we're talking about federal elections in these here United States. And I'm sure many of you know why. Because last week, President Trump just floated the idea of delaying the election until, and I quote, people can properly, securely, and safely vote. Now, this is crazy. It's crazy because it's coming from a man who wants to reopen factories, bars, theaters. He wants to hold rallies. He wants to require children to attend in-person school. But we can't safely go out and vote. It's also pretty crazy because if you look at the history of leaders who postpone elections, it's not great. The vast majority of time an election is delayed for whatever reason, whatever pretext, free elections are never held again under that government. And it's crazy because while the vast majority of prominent Republicans have at least rejected Trump's trial balloon of postponing the election, it hasn't been on the strongest terms. There's been a lot of furrowed brows. A lot of, boy, I wish you wouldn't say that. Lots of, well, maybe it's not the best idea. Not the kind of strong condemnation you want to hear when the leader of America decides that maybe we shouldn't have an election on the uh, scheduled date. But Trump's primary concern, it's not about election safety, going out there and voting because it's too dangerous because of coronavirus, obviously. But it's their legitimacy, he questions. And he's been questioning the legitimacy of elections for quite some time. Prior to the 2016 election, when asked if he would accept a potential electoral defeat, Trump's response was, it depends. And while he lost a popular vote by millions of votes, he did win the Electoral College, which, of course, why he's president. But that wasn't enough because he blamed his popular vote loss on voter fraud. Millions and millions of improperly cast ballots cost him the popular vote. Just two weeks ago, Fox News host Chris Wallace pressed the president on whether he would accept the results of the election. Trump responded that he wasn't a good loser and he thinks mail-in voting is going to rig the election. 
This is especially crazy because many people are increasingly looking at mail-in and absentee voting as a way for themselves to safely and securely cast their ballot in this country where coronavirus continues to run amok. And as an aside, both President Trump and Vice President Pence used mail-in ballots and absentee ballots to vote in the 2020 primaries just this spring. Trump said in June, mail ballots, they cheat. Mail ballots are very dangerous for the country because of cheaters. They go and collect them. They're fraudulent in many cases. They have to vote. They should have a voter ID, by the way. So I want to address two separate issues here. Is in-person voting fraud a problem? And is mail-in voting fraud a problem? The New York Times did some reporting after the 2016 election where almost 138 million Americans cast ballots, asking election and law enforcement officials in all states, and 26 responded, uh, from Democratic-leaning, Republican-leaning, everywhere in between, and they said that so far they knew of no credible allegations of fraudulent voting. Officials in another eight states said they knew of only one allegation. A few states reported somewhat larger numbers of fraud claims that were under review. For example, Tennessee counted 40 credible allegations out of some 4.3 million primary and general election votes in Georgia, where some 4 million votes were cast. Officials said they opened 25 inquiries into suspicious voting or election related activity. The New York Times also sent out inquiries to all 50 states and received a response from all but one state, Kansas, and found that none of them had reported indications of widespread fraud. In fact, President Trump's own election fraud commission that he formed personally to explore the millions of fraudulent votes in the 2016 election was disbanded early in 2018 after finding no real evidence of fraud. As far as mail-in voting, there's no evidence of fraud there either and little evidence that mail-in voting significantly affects the chances of either political party. According to the National Conference of State Legislators, a nonpartisan public officials association composed of sitting state legislators from the states, territories, and commonwealths. You can't, you can't forget the commonwealths. The people in Kentucky get mad when you do that. Of the United States, there are in fact five states that have elections entirely by mail. Uh, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, and Utah. And none of these states have reported anything but a handful of alleged voting irregularities. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Instances where people engage in individual fraud, somehow successfully registering like their dog for a ballot or casting a ballot for a deceased relative, generate huge headlines and get tons of media attention. Which makes sense because, like we said in the opening, elections are the bedrock foundation of our democracy. But these stories tend to come from both Republicans and Democrats. For example, in 1997, a Miami mayoral election led to the defeat of the Republican incumbent because a small army of paid fixers generated a few hundred absentee ballots. The fraud was caught by auditors, a judge threw out the results of an election, and 60 days later, a new vote was held. Similarly, in 2018, a congressional election was invalidated and had to be run again when it was discovered that a Republican operative in one county collected hundreds of absentee ballots, including blank ones from private residences. Again, the fraud was easily detected and a new election was held. But would mail-in voting favor one party or another? That's another question. And again, there's no evidence of this either. There are states with slight advantages that they've recorded for either Republicans or Democrats when mail-in ballots are counted. But 
what tends to matter is turnout, as in traditional elections. In this case, you're not turning out people physically, but the party that prioritizes education of their electorate about their process of mail-in voting and gets their constituents to actually follow the process and mail those ballots and get their ballots counted, that's the party that prevails. But on the other hand, who the fuck cares? If voting is made easier and more people vote and they vote Democrat, or for that matter, they vote Republican, then dims the brakes. Nobody that believes in democracy makes it more difficult to vote. So where are these calls to restrict absentee voting during a pandemic and calls to enact new voter ID legislation coming from? Well, a possible answer lies in our nation's past. In 1865, the Civil War was won by the Union. As part of Reconstruction, federal troops occupied the South, putting down small-scale rebellions and also paramilitary outfits like the White League and the Red Shirts, forerunners of the KKK, preventing them from terrorizing the newly freed black folks and suppressing their vote. After about a decade, as a way to resolve the disputed 1876 election, Southern Democrats agreed to accept Republican Rutherford B. Hayes as president as long as Northern Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops in the South and allow them to deal with their black population without federal interference. Enter the Jim Crow era. Racist politicians contrived several ways to suppress the black vote. There were literacy tests. Slaves were widely forbidden from being educated and taught to read, which put them in a disadvantage in this case. And while white literacy rates weren't all that great either, you know, given the time, there were many ways around this for them. A person who voted in elections prior to 1865 could be grandfathered in and excused the literacy test. You could also have people in your community vouch for your upstanding moral character and get around the test that way. And you're never going to guess which types of people could vouch for moral character and what types of characters voting boards chose to accept. Now, black people being black people, they overcame. As black literacy grew and black teachers and college professors became more common and they went to try to vote confident in their abilities, Southern politicians switched tactics. Now, voting administrators started setting like a jar of jelly beans on the counter and they'd ask voters to guess how many beans were in the jar or they'd ask how many bubbles um, a pro-offered bar of soap contained and somehow white people always just knew the right answers to those questions and black folks no matter their intelligence or education just never had the right answer to pass that test other places applied poll taxes charging as much as a dollar fifty to register to vote which you know doesn't sound like a lot but it was a lot of money at the time. Those taxes also had grandfather clauses. Now, these laws also began to affect poor and working class whites, but they disproportionately affected black people. And when all else failed, there was always good old fashioned intimidation. They just send some good old boys, maybe a sheriff's deputy or two, maybe some members of the Klan in good standing, quote unquote, to watch over polling places, you know, just to look for irregularities like Black folks being able to cast votes. Now, all this came to end with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which forbade these kinds of shenanigans. However, a 2013 Supreme Court ruling struck down an important provision of the Voting Rights Act, 
one that required states with histories of racial and minority discrimination to get changes to their election rules cleared by the federal government before they went into effect. Supreme Court decided that the South had learned their lesson and they were to be trusted not to play those games, not to play those shenanigans. Now, since then, those states that we trusted with a history of disenfranchising minorities have been busy passing laws, voter ID laws. Now, you might ask, what's the big deal about requiring a specific ID to vote? You know, it's a little bit uh, extra election security. Well, I don't know. What's wrong with charging a buck 50 to register to vote? What's wrong with requiring the ability to read the cast of vote? What's wrong with having polling security? You know, having those good old boys there to keep things safe. Lots of things that could seem innocent and reasonable from a person's perspective can have sinister applications, especially when, as we've just gone over, there is zero reason to be stepping up security because, as we've mentioned, there's zero evidence of voter fraud in the United States. Texas, for example, found a way to discriminate based on which type of voter IDs were acceptable. Military IDs, concealed carry permits were allowed, but state employee photo IDs and university photo IDs were not. Servicemen and women and gun owners are predominantly Republican. College kids and government workers lean heavily Democratic. Requiring a state ID also often requires paying fees, having a permanent address, waiting in long lines in government buildings and producing documentation like birth certificates and social security cards, things that some people don't have on hand or may have lost, they may have been destroyed, and can require a long lead time to get replacement copies. And you combine this with the voter registrations that close weeks ahead of elections, and people inevitably get disenfranchised. Hell, I showed up a few weeks ago to get one of those new federal versions of the state IDs we're going to need to fly sometime soon, I think at the end of this year, uh, right here in Ohio. And I found that they wouldn't accept my birth certificate as a form of ID because my mother decided to laminate it 43 years ago. I literally have never had this birth certificate turned down for any reason whatsoever. But the very nice lady informed me that recently they changed the law a few years ago. So, you know, I guess I have to go get a new copy. I had my state-issued ID with my photo on it. I had my federally-issued passport also with my uh, identity on it. That was insufficient to prove who I was. I needed that birth certificate in the paper format. And that's going to be a pain in the ass to get replaced, but I can get it done. I've got a car. I've got a flexible schedule. I have money in the bank. I've got an address that I live at that I can get a requested copy mailed to. But what if I didn't? What if I, like millions of Americans, were in danger of losing my home in the next 30 days, unless our leadership does something about the rent and mortgage crisis we have looming? We have 51 Americans newly unemployed since the start of the coronavirus epidemic. How many of those are going to still be in their homes in a month or two if nothing is done? Now, more insidious Many places in the South are simply closing polling locations in urban areas and college campuses. And we've seen the results. In Georgia, people had to wait in line over six hours in the blazing sun in the middle of a pandemic just to get their votes cast. Similar cases have happened all over the South and Southwest. In some cases, these locations did not receive enough ballots to meet demand. But suburban and affluent polling locations, no lines, plenty of ballots. 
which areas and types of people lean Republican, which areas and types of people lean Democratic. And I'll say again, nobody that believes in democracy makes it difficult to vote. And if you make it so that statistically only the right people can vote, that's not democracy. And we haven't even got into the very dastardly topic of gerrymandering, where unlike what you're supposed to do in democracy, which is have voters elect politicians, you have politicians select their voters. So essentially, they can never lose an election. Now, the natural way to combat polling location closures, ballot shortages, and keep yourself safe during this COVID-19 pandemic is, as we've mentioned, absentee voting. You don't have to go out. You don't have to stand shoulder to shoulder with people. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to worry about your ballot uh, not being there. But that requires a functional post office to carry the mail. And it just so happens that Trump has been undermining the United States post office. He's been continuing a conservative attack that has been going on for some time, in fact. In 2005, Congress imposed an austerity measure upon the Postal Service, which forced them to pre-fund retirement benefits 75 years into the future. They're required to cover potential employees that haven't even been born yet. No other government agency or any corporation operates in such a manner. And the result is the Postal Service started running annual shortages into billions. Then you had the rise of the internet and the economic recession in 2008, which led to a reduction over the next 10 years by over a third of advertising mail that had been keeping the Postal Service afloat. In response, the post office has closed locations and laid off more than 200,000 staff positions. And right now, as we may depend on the Postal Service to conduct a free and fair election, The post office is looking at laying off thousands more and closing even more locations. In fact, the outgoing postmaster general recently warned that without immediate support, the agency could run out of funds within the year and in that case might need to shut down. I say outgoing postmaster because Trump just appointed a new postmaster last month, a prominent Republican fundraiser who supported Trump heavily. And this completes a transition to total Trump leadership of the United States Postal Office after earlier key resignations from the Post Office Governing Board, including one position that oversees the management of mail-in voting. Trump's new man, uh, Louis DeJoy, has cut overtime for hundreds of thousands of postal workers who were covering for the past decade of staff shortages. This is widely speculated to cause delays in mail deliveries. In fact, uh, if headlines in the last few days are to be to believe, those slowdowns have already started happening. By the way, as is the usual, all the statements in this podcast are backed up by, I don't know, bibliography, a source list, and the show notes if you want to read more about this. But the bottom line is our president is baselessly attacking the validity and legitimacy of mail-in voting, of elections in general. Mail-in voting that he himself takes advantage of. And he's doing it in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic that he personally mismanaged. There's new reporting last week that alleged that his pandemic response team, led by his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, declined to form a national COVID testing plan, in large part because at the time, COVID-19 was hitting blue states the hardest. His team concluded that for this reason, a national plan was unnecessary and wouldn't make sense for the Trump administration politically. And by the time you listen to this podcast, 160,000 Americans are going to have died from the coronavirus in large part because we had no coordinated national testing plan. 
He is undermining the institution that many Americans, myself included, are going to be counting on to deliver our ballots this November because I've already signed up for mail-in voting. And now he wants to delay the election. In response, many leading Democrats have posted scoffing tweets reminding Trump that he can't do that because the law says he can't. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi tweeted, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution states, Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes. Which day shall be the same throughout the United States? Adam Schiff, representative for California, says, fact check, you can't do that. The Constitution explicitly grants Congress the power to set the election date, and we will do everything we can to ensure all Americans can vote safely and securely on November 3rd, no matter what nonsense you tweet. And you know what? They're right. That's what the law says. That's what our Constitution says. And I'm not worried at all because Trump has a long track record of respecting the law, established norms, and the integrity and validity of elections? No, I'm really worried. Now, a lot of people are engaging in kind of fun speculation about what might happen if he refuses to hold an election or leave office. Some people have fantasized about, I don't know, the the Capitol Police arresting him and removing him from the White House, frog marching him out like he's some kind of squatter. Others have made the wry observation that if Trump contests the election, well, his term as president as well as Vice President Pence's term expires by law in January. And then Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, well, she's next in line. She'll be president. But if there's a delay in election or a contested result, Speaker Pelosi's term expires even earlier in January. Then what? And the reality is no one knows. I've been reading about this all week. People act like Trump is going to go maybe full military dictator, call up the troops, board himself up in the White House. But the greater likelihood is that he just file lawsuit after lawsuit like he's always done when he doesn't get his way. Drown the opponent in legal paperwork, muddy the waters, have his fixers in the Justice Department led by Attorney General William Barr play merry hell with the law while Hundreds of district and circuit court justices that he personally appointed in the last few years look the other way or even enable the behavior. What I want to hear from our leadership is what's the plan for if and when Trump decides to delay the election, not just float it over Twitter, but actually take steps to do it or contest it or refuse to leave office if an election is held and he loses. What if the post office collapses or suffers massive delays during a majority mail-in election? What if there isn't personnel available to monitor and prosecute mail-in voter fraud? Because just pointing to the Constitution and saying, you can't do that, fact check, it's not allowed, it hasn't been working out real well for us lately, has it? A lot of our checks and balances don't seem to be checking and balancing. What if that trend continues? What do we do? Well, usually at this point in the podcast, I have some kind of call to action for things we can do to try to right wrongs that we talk about, right? But this, I'm not really sure. There are a few things I can think of to try to, you know, give us the best chance possible. One, register to vote. And two, fucking vote. Again, vote411.org. Get it done. Get it done right now. 
If you live in a state that has mail-in ballots, make sure you've requested one. There have been many, many more states approving of mail-in absentee ballots this year because of the coronavirus. Unless you live in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, New York, or Connecticut, you can absolutely mail your ballot in. But you better do it as soon as you can. I filled out my application to the election board in Hamilton County this week. According to them, I should get my ballot in early October. And I don't want to risk pressing my luck with some floundering post office. I'm going to be checking my mailbox like a hawk. And as soon as I get that ballot, I'm going to fill it out immediately and I'm going to return it. In fact, I have the ability in Ohio to hand deliver it to our election board offices. And I'm going to mask up and I'm going to go out there and do it. I want to leave nothing to chance. Ohio also offers a very easy way to check the status of your ballot online. And I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be checking that sucker, refreshing, hitting F5 every single day until it shows up as counted. And I encourage everyone to do the same as much as your state allows. But if you do live in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, New York, or Connecticut, what do you do then? I mean, if I was a citizen in one of those states, I'd be writing my governor, my state representatives, my city council, my mayors. I'd be demanding they take action, call them, email them, tweet at them, look for any state or local organizing to apply political pressure on them to relent, join up with them, uh, phone bank for them, donate money to them. And the rest of us that live in states that are living in reality should ask our elected officials, especially our senators and U.S. representatives, our governors, what is the plan? What is the plan if the rule of law fails us? What if the Supreme Court is ignored? And what if the Senate just kind of shrugs? Eh, you know, election delay. Eh, he's contesting the election. That's, you know, January and we still don't have a president yet. By what mechanism will the law be enforced? What are we going to do about the crisis facing our postal service that might enable all this? To that end, I'm including a direct link to the Find Your Representative tool from the political watchdog organization Common Cause in the show notes. All you got to do is input your street address and it will spit out literally every elected official at the federal and state and local, if it can find it, level that currently represents you with their contact information, including telephone number. If you've got a few minutes each day, especially if you're out of work right now, again, like 50 million other Americans that have found themselves out of work since Corona set in, maybe reach out and let them know you're watching what they're doing and what they're saying on these matters. And then I think we all really need to do some soul searching and decide what our line in the sand is. What are we going to personally do if the election is postponed or even canceled? What are you going to do if there's a purge of voting registrations before the election? What are you going to do if your local polling stations have civilians with body armor and rifles or I don't know, even federal agents working for the Department of Homeland Security or Border Patrol, the Marshal Service, nameless, faceless goons just posted up, you know, to keep an eye out for irregularities? What are you going to do if your polling location is closed or runs out of ballots? What are you going to do if the post office runs days or even weeks behind in the lead up to the election and we're concerned about whether our ballots are going to be delivered? What are you going to do if millions in the United States are evicted and find themselves homeless heading into the election? What if that American is you? What's your plan? Maybe it's time to have another one of those difficult conversations with our friends and family. Are they aware of what's happening? Are they concerned? What are they going to do about it? What can we do together? What is the plan? 
scary times out there in terms of the economy, in terms of the state of justice, in terms of public health, in terms of civil unrest, in terms of the health of our democracy. But, you know, I did promise if you made it through the bad stuff, we'd have a little treat. And here it is. I'm going to try to turn this corner from kind of doom and gloom uh, to a positive conversation about race. You know, we spent a lot of time on this podcast so far talking about race in America. But as I've mentioned in passing, you know, racism isn't just a problem in America. It's it's all over the globe. Each country has its own minorities, their own prejudices, their own histories of oppression of minority and indigenous groups uh, and their own histories of oppression of those and systems that work to perpetuate it. So joining us now is Nova Reed. She's a writer and anti-racism activist. Earlier this year, she delivered a TED talk. Not all superheroes wear capes how you have the power to change the world, which, of course, I've linked in the show notes, as well as her personal site, NovaReed.com, where you can find all the ways to follow her and get in touch online. Nova, N-O-V-A, like the star exploding, Reed, R-E-I-D.com. I will say that this interview took place some time ago, just before coronavirus shut us all down, before George Floyd was murdered, before the massive waves of protests took place all over the world that these events sparked. The fact that you're hearing it now, it's kind of my fault. But since we haven't solved either personal or systemic prejudice in the meantime, it's just as relevant now as the day that we recorded it. Nova, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate uh, it. Was it your cousin or it was somebody that that, that put us together? Your brother is even closer. Well, I, I, big thanks to Brother Reed there for uh, <laughs> for, for putting us in touch. Um, I so w- when you sent us uh, an email, uh, you mentioned that you had this TED talk, um, which I watched. It's about fifteen minutes long. It's very short, and it's got a lot of interesting information. Um, and I think what's really interesting about you is that uh, you know you've got an experience as what it's like to be a black person in the UK, which is not something that I've been able to spend much time thinking about but it seems like from this video there's a lot of like commonality of experiences and i you you begin early on talking about how early racial bias uh manifests in children like it's maybe racism isn't inborn but culturally it starts pretty young can we talk about like what have studies shown as far as like children's racial biases and and their preferences Yeah, they've shown that whether or not you're explicitly um, having age-appropriate conversations with children about race, they are learning social and racial social cues from us, and they are learning racial bias from as young as three years old. So they automatically start having positive or negative associations um, with different ethnicities from as young as three. Um, So, yeah, lots of parents often come to me worried that their children are behaving in a certain way or saying certain things and they don't know where they've learned it from but they're taking social cues from society programming toys books tv who's around them who's not who they can see in society is treated differently than others so it's quite profound and quite powerful yeah that's a really that's that's a really good point it's something that um 
I've had conversations with like Ron Dawson in the the previous conversation where, you know, he points out that uh, it can be as simple as like walking down a toy aisle and seeing, you know, wall to wall, floor to ceiling dolls that are white and blonde and brunettes. But you very rarely maybe it's like five percent of the it's a very small percentage. You'll see someone that looks like yourself. And not too many years ago, there was zero. And like kids Mm. notice that they notice that. I don't look like this or can I look like this and anyone that doesn't look yeah. like this is different. Yeah, um, they, t- they start making assumptions about what they do and don't see. Um, yeah. And it's just human nature. It's, it's it's how they come to learn about their own identity by, well, I look like, why don't I look like you, mummy? Or why, you know, it's particularly with um, children who are in biracial families mm. where mum might be black dad might be white or vice versa and mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to figure out why they don't look like one or the other and it's just it's quite natural but lots of parents feel really uncomfortable even having those conversations with them about racial difference How, what do you think what kind of conversations would help children kind of like like not even react to it but like if i was a parent and i wanted to try to steer my child in a direction of like, you know, curiosity and tolerance and less of like, you know, just taking the default. Do you have any suggestions for like how you can have those conversations with kids? Like you said, age appropriate conversations. Yeah, it's age. I think, you know, there are studies that are showing um, a lot of parents who are white are raising their children not to see color. So to be colorblind, not to see race, not to talk about race. And I understand why they're doing it. It's Mm. well-intentioned, but it's having the opposite effect. Studies are showing it has the opposite effect. So you're trying to raise the next generation to be understanding and accepting of difference, but not talking about race, telling them not to see color, is teaching them that there's something wrong with it and that there's a stigma around race and there's a stigma around racial difference. Um, So for me, it's it's just encouraging conversations and it's it's okay to have age-appropriate conversations when they start to notice um, rather than teaching them not to see it or talk about it at all Um, because they already start to learn, well, there's something wrong with that, so I'm not going to go there on a subconscious level. You talk a, a bit in this, uh, you cover a lot of ground. I was amazed that like I take, uh, it takes me an hour to get out what you what you did in 15 minutes. Um, and with, with really good pacing too. Like it's, you really, you. I feel like I talk way too fast and only about half of the information gets through. It's something I'm working on, <laughs> but you, you cover this concept of microaggressions. And I thought you had a neat, I don't know if it's your analogy or if it's something that you uh, are cribbing, but the mosquito analogy that this is like a biological fact that some people uh, attract more mosquitoes than others. And <laughs> you could have a people, a group of people walking on the same hike and, and some of them like, this is something happens with my wife. She gets eaten up by mosquitoes. They don't seem to pay me any mind, especially if there's her to preferentially feed on. You could have people at the end of that hike saying, my God, that was a terrible experience. Look at all these mosquito bites. I'm itchy. I got red bumps. And then the other, another person be like, I don't know what you meant. I didn't, didn't get bit by, bit once. Can you explain a little bit about, cause I think some of the, my, the, the my white audience might, um, I, when you hear the word microaggressions, it's almost as the term designed to scoff at like, oh, these tiny things that are annoying to you. Um, can you talk about that and the mosquito theory and, and, and maybe shed some light on it? So microaggressions are a form of everyday 
discrimination and they the, the term was first coined in the 1970s by um, an academic called Chester Pierce and it was based on some research and um, observing human behavior and seeing that it was first the study was actually done on African-American people and just noticing that they were subjected to more of this everyday discrimination based on race um, more so than their white or white passing peers. And uh, over a period of time, they started to introduce the concept to other people in minority identities. So people with disability, people who are in the LGBTQ community or queer, um, experiencing these everyday versions of discrimination. And I describe them as these everyday subtle ways of communicating that you somehow are out of place or you somehow don't belong. And in isolation, they seem really harmless, but what makes them so dangerous is because they happen several times a day, every day of your life. They can have a huge, uh, a huge and detrimental impact on 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 mental health. And so the mosquito analogy is um, it's a really good video by Fusion Comedy. I use a mm. short link, a short clip of it in my talk, and it's basically it's like my, if you think about microaggressions like mosquito bites, you know, one or two, or when you're just on holiday, you get used to them and they're an irritation, they itch a while, but if that bite starts becoming infected, then it causes can cause huge problems, illness, irritation, infection, could be hospitalised, and so it's just it. For me, the micro, the mosquito definition is like how they can build up and cause problems over a long period of time, and that they're in isolation, that they're nuisance and they're little, um, but it's the culmination of them that can lead to things. So um, there are studies that show people who receive um, racial stress on a regular basis, so something like microaggressions. Um, neuroscience has showed the same brain pattern on people who experience microaggressions, black people in particular, same brain pattern as war veterans who served in war and are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. So I just like to give that as a baseline to say, yeah, in isolation, they seem harmless, but actually there's data that's showing that they're, they're not because they happen so often and we're also not used to addressing them and shutting them down when they happen. Did you happen to watch this latest season of uh, Watchmen on HBO Nova? No, I haven't. Because it's one of the interesting things about it is it's one of its core concepts was talking about that, like the the elevated mm. stress amongst African-Americans, in particular black Americans, um, and like even studies that show that some of this is epigenetic, which means that like yeah. racial discrimination and stress that your parents feel Yes. gets encoded t- into your DNA and makes you yes. l- more likely to be anxious and have these like cortisol responses to these t- certain stresses. So like it compounds over generations, which is a wild concept, but it seems like it's really worn out in the, in the data. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's profound. There's a lot, there's a lot more. And I'm, I'm, I'm digging into it myself around sort of ch- ch- how transgenerational trauma is passed on yeah. as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's in our DNA. Uh, it's on a cellular, on a cellular level for some of us. And so, yeah, certain environments can trigger trauma um, without us even recognizing or, or, or even knowing where that's coming from but mm. you know we have a very violent colonial past so mm. 
it kind of makes sense in that respect. Yeah, I was wondering because uh, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on is that, you know, I had this conversation with Ron and we talked about how from a white perspective, from the way we're taught in school is like there's various touch points where you could say America solved racism, like end of the Civil War, <laughs> like the North <laughs> beat the South and that solved racism. Then you could point to things like uh, the Civil Rights Act where, you know, everything's all everything's all good. We've ever everyone's yeah. equal in the eyes of the law. And what I've realized in my study is that like in in fact the war against racism is a genetic struggle or not a genetic it's a generational struggle to where every yeah. every 10 or 15 years whenever progress is made there's these forces um, economic forces um, political forces that keep kind of like this tide that keeps like this this current that keeps pushing against mm-hmm. that 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 progress into the fact that like by the time you get to the the time you get to a place where black people in America are equal under the law, which is in the late sixties, early seventies, the effects of these generational struggles have made the net, the, the, the amount of land that is owned by black people, the amount of wealth mm. in their families, uh, the le- the level of education is such a disparity that it's like, um, you know, if, if you're stabbed, like this is, I think an illustration, I can't remember some black activists use, but it's like, if someone is stabbing you, um, and they're stabbing you repeatedly with these knives and then suddenly they're like stop and they're like okay I'm just going to stop stabbing you we're cool now like no I, there needs to be stitching there needs to be bandages there needs to be um, you healing talk, time for healing healing yeah and and I feel like that's the, the what a lot of times we don't see um, what is so that's our kind of complex history and there's tons and tons you could talk about in America but you mentioned you know the UK and, and their history of colonialism they're kind of like the poster kid for colonialism uh, the, <laughs> the sun never we'll set we'll try and hide it we'll yeah. try and hide it and deny it <laughs> yeah but you know one time the sun never sat on the British Empire and that's a big footprint to have on the globe uh, oh my god is a huge is a huge footprint of genocide but you know I think what's what's interesting about British history is that most people don't know the full extent of it most people again have had this sanitized and whitewashed version of Christopher Columbus and, and sure. other key figures, um, Winston Churchill, who did, you know, who did this, that and the other. And we we helped to end slavery. And and it's kind of this sanitized version mm-hmm. without really acknowledging the depth of 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 the amount of genocide and what we did in, in, in invading other countries and sort of um, exhausting land and natural resources for our own gain, which obviously had an impact on everything, on, on the economy, finances, um, land, everything. Mm-hmm. And we think that just by having a change of law, abolishing the Slavery Act and then changing laws and introducing, um, well, I think they were race relations acts, they were called then, they've, they've since changed now, um, to try and you know address what's going on in society with, with people being publicly lynched, because it did happen in the UK. It's not as, not as, really? not as common. We're great at hiding our history, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we kind of dress it over, but we're actually not really addressing the impact of that and the fact that in 2015, British taxpayers only just finished paying off the debt from slavery. So the slavery reparations we paid hmm. to slave-owning families were only paid off by British taxpayers in 2015. And that's not 
to those who were enslaved and had everything, their lives stripped from them and sort of a foundation of nothing, no atonement, no nothing. That was going back to the slave owning families. Hmm. And so when people say, oh, you know, it happened a long time ago, let's all move along. It's like, you know, we're still financially impacted by that. Like I'm paying for that. I'm paying for my ancestors, <laughs> slave owning families. Um, can, I, can, I, can I ask a clarification? You're saying that the reparations were paid to the owners of slaves? Yes. So to, to, to recompensate them for the losses of their property. Correct. That's, oh my God. Cause I thought it's like, wait, UK has reparations. I didn't, I had no idea. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. You know, Correct. cause up until the last few months when I've started talking about these topics, I would have thought that the UK was light years ahead of the United States. Um, because I says like, there's just no way like this, this like, uh, American institution of slavery is like kind of somewhat unique and how pervasive and how much of our economy depended on it. But yeah, sounds like everyone's our economy depending on it too. Yeah. It was, it was there's, there's loads of crossovers. It was, a, it was a commodity. It was a commodity. Um, it made money. It, you know, and that, that well, infrastructure impacted every single industry. And it makes sense because, you know, uh, not for nothing, America used to be a colony of, Eng- yeah. <laughs> of England. So this is a very, these are, it's, it's all, it should be obvious to me, but it's a very, uh, very close related topic, obviously. Should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have another thing that I thought was a really great way, because I'm always trying to think of like, you know, what are good analogies um, to, to talk to people who are skeptical about terms like privilege and microaggression? Because you mm-hmm. talk about that, you know, the worst type of racism in the West isn't. And it's interesting. You showed uh, uh, to illustrate the the really pernicious types, uh, a Klan, Ku Klux Klan rally in Muncie, Indiana, which mm-hmm. is only about 15 minutes from where my mother-in-law lives now. It's only about 45 wow. minutes from where I was born uh, and that was not even a hundred years ago but you no. say that like you don't you're, there's not a lot of the lynching cross burning white hoods although they're not gone you, you use the like a car accident illustration for like why because a lot of a lot of white folk get defensive when they start talking about yeah you know, you're racist and they're like, well, I'm not racist like a Klan person. I'm not racist like a neo-Nazi. Um, mm. And he has this really great car accident illustration I'd like to, you to talk about. So for me, so the, the work I do, so I'm working with people who really want to get their head around what all this anti-racism stuff is and what all this white privilege stuff is because underneath all of that all, they want a world where there is equality and justice for mm-hmm. everyone. And so my my job is to educate people about what racism is beyond an overt act of intentional hate, beyond somebody who is a neo-Nazi, beyond somebody in the KKK, because we've been so accustomed to just associating racism with an individual who is a dodgy human being or who intentionally wants to cause harm to another person solely because of the color of their skin. Yeah. But what we miss are the nuances of systemic racism that are a byproduct of colonization and having slavery for 400 plus years. Um, those laws and those belief systems around in order for a, a group of people, so black and brown people, to be seen as inferior, there needed to be a group of people who were seen as superior. You can't have one without the other. So for me, it's not about pointing blame. It's like this is a system that was normalized and that we were all part of historically in some way. And as a result of that system, that valid human life, certain types of human life as as, as more valuable than others, 
we've been left with these residues that are showing up in um, disparities in healthcare, access to housing, um, ethnicity pay gaps, all of these sorts of things. And that is a byproduct of, of 400 plus. You don't just change a law. Like we've all been around. Slavery and colonization and genocide and everything else was normal practice for longer than it hasn't been. Mm. And I think people forget that, that can't, we, we've got a lot to undo and unlearn before you know, we're on an even playing field again. So I, I use a car crash analogy um, to get people out of thinking in binary terms, like you're either good or you're bad, you're either racist or you're not. Well, no, mm. you can be good and racist. You can be good and have racist thoughts. You can be good and have racist behavior. <laughs> um, and the only way that we sort of move forward from that is if there's an acceptance. I was at a talk recently and um, it was a panel discussion with a white lady and a black woman. And in fact, the author was a book. The author is somebody called Layla Saad and she's just published a book called Me and My White Supremacy. Mm. And it walks um, anyone through who wants to unlearn their racism on how to do that in 20, well, to start the process in 28 days. And so she was saying, um, she was the, the white host was using an analogy that she find, finds it very painful. It, it feels accusationary. You know, admitting that you have racism in you is not a good feeling. No, it's not. Um, no, and I, and I acknowledge that. She, she alluded to the fact that it feels like, I think she's got her own experience with addiction. She said there's an element of it where if you're an addict, before you can actually move forward and heal, there's a point of acceptance which needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And she said she feels like it's the same for white people, that until we get to the point of, you know what, I've got racism in me, it's not my fault, it's learned, but I want to do something to unlearn it then nothing will change. So for me, the car crash analogy was was speaking to that. Yet we can do things to cause harm to other people without intending to, but the outcome remains how harmful. And the only way we change the outcome is that if we become conscious in our role that we play and actively wanting to do something so that the outcome changes. Because it's all well and good doing stuff and then saying sorry, but if you continue to do stuff that causes harm, then we'll still have problems with racism in another 10 years. I just thought it's so clever because you point out that like, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons you might find yourself in a car accident. Maybe you, you is road rage and you just yeah. lost control of yourself. A, and that's a supermarket bump, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's an extreme crash. Yeah. Right. But I mean, like, but it's, it, I think it, it really, it's an enduring, I'm going to try to, I, I think it's an enduring metaphor because just like you know like there's that's a little bit beyond the pale like you smash them unintentionally or you get drunk and you do through negligence but yeah. maybe the sun was in your eye or maybe your child yeah. cried and just momentarily distract you maybe a light was malfunctioning at the end of the day you hit the car and you cause damage yeah. and do you yeah. get out say are you okay exchange information insurance information make sure that you uh, fix the other person's property if you've damaged it yeah. or do you just drive off and leave them broken and out inside the road and like there's a you, you, people do do that but we have a word for them they're assholes and you don't we don't want to be assholes when it comes to this stuff if, if if we have done damage it's not about blame it's not about responsibility because i think that's another thing that gets stuck in white folks craws that it feels when you start 
digging into diversity and anti-racism and you're a white person, particularly if you're a white man, it a lot of times feels like everything in the world is your fault. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everything bad is your fault. Everything good is to your benefit. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's real easy to, you know, get defensive and, and reject that, yeah. that frame. Yeah. But it seems like um, the more I talk to uh, people who are in your line of work, trying to explain these concepts, they don't want apologies and um, they, they want, they want help. They want pe- and not help yeah. in like can that's, but help is like, help us change, recognize this change the outcome yeah, yeah help us recognize this problem and fix it together yes let's work together absolutely. for the first time in this planet's existence let's all as a people work together <laughs> uh that's it that's it for me and and don't get me wrong there are no i this is my work i'm i i work as a diversity consultant i'm an anti-racism educator also acknowledging part of this is that you know not every um black or brown person understands what anti-racism is um, on a theoretical level. Sure. So there are going to be some people who are, you know, arguably rightfully holding on to a lot of anger and are blaming. But yeah. ultimately, it's a system that we're all part of. And actually, we we need that acknowledgement piece, that acceptance piece, so that we can actually all work together and say, you know what, I acknowledge this. You know, it's not my fault as an individual. Like, it's not... It's it's not my dad's fault that he benefited from patriarchy. It's just it's just a system that existed where men were tr- given more rights than women, and there's mm-hmm. been a byproduct from that. There's no single person to blame. It's just acknowledging, okay, this is where we're at, and actually, what can I do to help move us all forward? Because that's ultimately we all just want to live in peace. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think ultimately is what we all want. And what a beautiful world it would be if, if we could do that. Yeah. Uh, I, the one thing that, uh, cause I mentioned a couple, uh, until a couple months ago, I wasn't even aware that, um, you know, that there was a racism problem in the UK. It's how, how ignorant about oh, geopolitics yes. I was, oh, yes. but I mean, we hide it well, don't we? Well, some, some of <laughs> the thing, I, I think what caused it kind of bubbled over is, uh, there was an interracial mar- royal marriage between, mm-hmm. uh, Prince Harry and, uh, princess Megan. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after what is it a year to how, how long they've been married and they're talking about, they, they got married in May, 2018. So it's been about a year and a half, or I guess it's yeah. coming on two years. Yeah, time flies. But they, we, had, we got word that like they're wanting to leave royal life and move yeah. to Canada and kind of renounce all their ties to this system. <laughs> and at first, it's like I, I think in in as a as American, the coverage we're seeing is kind of like it was a jo- bit of a joke because they were saying like they want to go their own way, they want to forge their mm. own path. It's kind of like oh man, it must be really, really tough being a wealthy prince and princess mm. to kind of do that. That, but it seems like what actually drove them out is this coded racism you're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they have to be, they've had to be careful uh, with what they say. Mm-hmm. But when they first started dating, um, Harry issued a statement to mainly towards the British press saying, we you need to stop uh, the racism that, that Megan is receiving um, and the racial understones from the media and the hounding needs to stop. It's We will not tolerate it. And um, then they got engaged and there was a period of um, 
well, I don't think it ever went away, but there was a period where people were anticipating the wedding. It was much more upbeat, and and but it just got worse and worse and worse, and it got even worse when they had their baby. Well, there was one uh, journalist who was trying to who wrote an article on how black the baby would be, and hmm. it's just you know that stuff seeps in, um, and it's yeah, it was became very apparent that they were. And, and Harry spoke about it in a documentary uh, about, I think he used the word bias. People often use the word bias in place of racism because it feels mm. more palatable. But sure. he was speaking about it. Um, yeah, and I have no doubt that that was a huge contributing factor to them literally wanting to emancipate themselves from the royal family. Mm. Um, and I was there. I was at the royal wedding in um, in May. I was invited uh, as a, a media expert and um, even being there and hearing some of the conversations with other members of the monarchy um, one in particular had said that uh, that she will struggle um, and she will never be accepted and um, I don't I don't doubt for a moment that that person was lying I think that's you know it's a case and point example it's wild that a little a literal prince and princess that live in castles are not above the effects of racism. No. Well, I mean, if you if think about the British monarchy and how intrinsically linked that was to colonization mm. and slavery, it's like, it can't, you know, it can't, again, unless people are intentionally addressing their own inherent racism and they're accepting of it, then then cycles just get keep being passed down and repeated generation to generation because it's just not, it's not dealt with. And so it's still there. The undercurrent is still there, even if laws have changed. Because it was forbidden, strictly forbidden in the British monarchy for anyone to have a relationship um, with a black person. Um, And when there were sort of these relationships or uh, rapes, shall we say, Mm -hmm. um, the children were called, the children who were half black and half white were called mulatto and they were hidden away and they were treated um, like second class citizens. And that was in the monarchy. So it's, yeah, it's complex. Well, I, again, I, this is, um, I've, I've spent a lot of time the last few years thinking about, uh, the effects of race in America. Um, and it's, it's amazing to hear like, you know, perspectives from different countries. And I hope we can do this because I, I know there's perspectives all around the world. You know, like if you talk to uh, people in Australia versus Canada mm. versus, uh, Africa, uh, South Africa, especially there's, um, yes. cause that's the, that's the other key thing. I think that white folk, uh, like myself, uh, need to understand is that privilege is not a universal concept. Like what is privileged in one particular context in a particular part of the world might be non-privileged in another part. Um, mm. But like all these worldwide perspectives of how, you know, the differences, um, especially between like uh, colonizers versus indigenous peoples, um, yeah. how all these things have been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years and acting like they're going to go away in a few <laughs> generations is um, noble and optimistic, but probably foolish. Yeah. It's not realistic. No. You, you know, you're not addressing the issue. Right. Or what's causing the issues. Then it just keeps spreading and spreading like a virus as far as I'm concerned. And I think that's a great example of, you know, why we're still seeing all these disparities and, you know, a political climate and, and you know, like it's a universal way. Right? Governments are leaning more towards one side than the other. And that's that's happening in a, in a universal way. And that's not for no reason. 
you know, I wonder to bring it back to something we talked about at the beginning where you talked about how it's actually detrimental to teach your children to be colorblind. Um, like that's the goal that we're striving towards, like Martin Luther King said. Uh, but we're not there yet. And it's kind of it, it's it's essentially like um, when a disease is on the decline and everyone decides that, hey, you know what? We don't have to take vaccines anymore. And then it comes roaring back. <laughs> like, I feel like in this early 21st century, we're flirting with uh, not taking our racial vaccinations and inviting so many of the problems that we worked very hard to to yes. make progress on the 20th century come come roaring back. Like right back. the same yeah. way measles yeah. and small uh, and, and, and smallpox and polio and God forbid some of these other diseases are getting a foothold. We we can't pretend like we live in disease free society. Yeah. Uh, we need our vaccines. We can't pretend that we live in a post-racist racism or post-race society we have to acknowledge it head on we have to acknowledge it and be intentional with it and Mm -hmm. um you know and also remove you know there's there's nothing wrong with being black and there's nothing wrong with being white Mm -hmm. or asian and and that those are the kind of conversations that that we should be encouraging with our children rather than for them not to see race or difference at all um, right. because it, it, it has the complete opposite effect the studies show us it shows that they're not tolerance to racial difference and they are inadequate at recognizing discrimination hence why we're in the situation we're in now well nova i really appreciate you volunteering to come on and share your perspective on this as it pertains to the uk and just uh your your wisdom and scholarship on the topic in general i really appreciate it you're welcome thank you for having me Thanks once again to Nova for coming on and talking with us. Again, you can watch her TED Talk and visit her site, novareed.com, which are all linked in the show notes and the podcast, which I highly recommend. She's a great follow. And that's going to wrap it up for our show this week. If you learned a few things in the podcast or got a little bit more fire put in your belly, you can show your support for Three Right Turns by becoming a patron at patreon.org slash swizzbold. By the time you heard this, you just missed our monthly exclusive Patreon live stream, which I always look forward to each month. It's always fun to hang out with people, see what they're thinking, see what my co-hosts and my friends are thinking. But you can also sign up right now and get access to that as well as all of our past archive streams and be ready to participate in the next one, either by submitting topic and discussion IDs or hanging out with us in chat. Again, all by signing up at patreon.org swizzbold. And now I'd like to thank our Fred Level patrons for their support during these scary times. Thank you, Lisa Singleton, Kira Grushow, Jenny, Marcon, Brandon DeVito, George P. Burdell, Greg Rasp, Brian Rasmussen, Laura Luthi, Jordan Hoyt, Arvin Rao, Jordan Harlman, James Taylor, and Angela Morano. Thank you all for your support. As always, you can get in touch with me at 3RT at SwizzBold.com, and you can engage our audience of interesting and intelligent folks on our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash SwizzBold. Follow SwizzBold everywhere on social media at SwizzBold. Next week, I once again join my co-host Cecily on one weird trick to discuss more helpful tips and tricks to lead happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives. You know, we also dispense life, career, and love advice over there if you've never given us a try. So if you have a vexing life problem, give us a listen and maybe bend our ear at OWT at SwizzBold.com. And then the following week, there will be more right turns, three of them, in fact, all ready to go. Until then, be careful out there. Check your registration status and register to vote at vote411.org. Get your mail-in ballot if you're eligible to do so. 
do some soul searching and come up with a plan for how you're going to make sure your vote counts this November. See you next time. Thank you.